I, w I was actually going to start by saying that I'm so thankful for uh, Willie and his family and uh, Pastor Chad with the music. Um, I, obviously, maybe the announcements and schedule are not Chad's thing, but music, <laughs> definitely his thing. So, but I, I was going to say I really appreciate that. You guys have very gospel-centered music. I mean, I think genuine believers love to sing about Christ's sacrifice for us and what it means, and so that's been a blessing. I appreciate that. That's been good. Um, I started this week uh, telling you that I was homeless and jobless, um, and I'm no longer jobless. Uh, so, yeah, that's good. Yeah, actually, uh, a, a church voted on Sunday, and we accepted the call there, and so um, we're still homeless, though. So I think it's, it's steps. We're just taking steps. So I'm trying to catch up to where my kids are in life. So that's, uh, that's what we're trying to do here. So... I have a rhetorical question for you, um, so one for you to kind of ponder, and that is this. And I, I, know, I know we normally don't start out with something that requires you to participate, but kind of bear with me here. So do you think of yourself more as a person that needs to forgive or a person that needs forgiveness? That's the question. Do you think of yourself more as a person that needs to forgive? In other words, you think that um, other people are sinning against you, or do you think of yourself more as a person that needs um, forgiveness, that you sin against others and against God? Do you, do you think of others' sin against you and how they need your forgiveness, or do you think of your sin against others and against God as needing forgiveness? So that, that's the rhetorical question. Kind of ponder that as we, as we talk here. Uh, Mez McConnell is a pastor in um, the UK, and he's also an author. I came across his book, The Creaking on the Stairs, when I was researching for a class on counseling victims and perpetrators of abuse. And Mez was physically abused by his stepmom when he was growing up. It was horrendous. Um, he says, this woman who drove me to such despair that I attempted to set her on fire in her drunken sleep when I was no more than 10 years old. His abuse included cigarette burns on his arms, nights locked in a cupboard without food and clothing, being stripped and mocked in front of drunken strangers, being beaten with poles and sticks, being knocked unconscious for failing to wash a dish properly. And he wrote a blog when he first learned of his stepmom's death, and it shows how conflicted he was. He wants people to know how bad she was. He wants her to face punishment for her sins against him. But he says this, I want God to overlook my sins. I like it when he does that. But hers, that's a stretch. I tell myself that I'm a better person than she was. Is that true? Maybe now. But any good in me belongs to the Holy Spirit. I hurt people. I abused people. I stole. I lied. I murdered in my heart. I too have done awful things. Later he says this, she doesn't need my forgiveness any more than I need her repentance. We both need the former from God and he requires the latter from us. Thankfully in Jesus, he grants both to all who come. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Do you see what he did there? In the end, Mez McConnell puts himself in the same category as his tormentor, his abuser. He said, we both need forgiveness from God. 
That's grace. And it is amazing. Grace is beautiful. It's the close of the new man. So let's talk about grace tonight. We've said several times now that you have to change radically from what you were. And maybe you think I'm getting lazy in titling my sermons. I mean, come on, Craig. Even more 180 degree change. Uh, it is the last one in this passage. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I didn't lack creativity there. Um, it's our fourth sermon looking at Ephesians 4. And before we get into this passage, let's back up a little bit. In Ephesians 1, Paul starts this long sentence, and it is all one sentence. Sometimes our English translations don't show that. But in chapter 1, from verse 3 to verse 14, it is one long sentence of praise to God for our election, our adoption, our redemption, and reconciliation. He praises God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Then he writes a thanksgiving for the Ephesians and an intercessory prayer, ending with describing Christ's exaltation to God's right hand. It is a chapter that is chock full of the gospel. It's a great chapter to read when your church is having communion. You have a moment there to, to think as the elements are being passed. Chapter 2 begins with a description of our desperate situation before Christ, that we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned. And then, of course, the greatest phrase in Scripture, but God who is rich in mercy. That begins verse four. And that phrase makes all the difference. We were saved by grace through faith without any works. God created us for good works, he tells us in verse 10. And in the second half of the chapter, Paul talks about how Gentiles specifically were outside, but were brought inside. And now Jews and Gentiles are one in the church through the cross of Christ. In chapter three, Paul describes how the church was established and his stewardship of this mystery, that all ethnicities are one in Christ. And then he ends with this amazing doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Ephesians is one of the clearest examples of Paul's pattern of beginning with rich doctrine in the first half of the letter and ending with ethical exhortation in the second half. Or we could say it fancy, we could say he starts with orthodoxy and ends with orthopraxy, that the indicatives in Greek lead to the imperatives in Greek. All this doctrine in chapters one through three should lead to real progressive sanctification in your lives. Look at how he starts chapter four. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So he spent three chapters telling us about our marvelous calling, and now he says we need to live like those that have been changed by the gospel. And he describes what that walk looks like. It's humility, it's gentleness, it's patience, it's tolerance, it's love. And we learn that Jesus individually gifted us for service in verses seven through 10, and that God has given pastors to equip the saints for service in the church. In fact, we find out that you cannot grow apart from the church. Maybe you have relatives or friends who claim to be Christian and they don't attend church and you ask them how they're doing. Oh, we're doing great. God and I are doing wonderful. They can't be. I mean, Ephesians 4 tells us that we grow together in the church. Then Paul contrasts the old man and the new man. We looked at that. We cannot live the way that we used to because we have not so learned Christ. And scripture uses that metaphor of clothes, that those old clothes don't fit you anymore, so take them off. Put on the new clothes of righteousness and holiness. Your old man was characterized by deceitful lusts. 
Your new man is characterized by holy truth. And that happened at salvation, but as we said, it's a lifelong pattern for us in our sanctification, to put off, to put on, to have your mind renewed. In the beginning in verse 25, Paul gets very specific about what the new man should live like with a repeated pattern of this put off, put on, and a reason to think differently than you did before Christ. And every one of them is dealing with relationships. So we looked at put off dishonesty and put on truth. Why? Because we're members of the same body, the church. Put off sinful anger, put on impatience with anger. Why? Because letting anger fester gives Satan an opportunity to destroy your relationships. Put off stealing, put on sweat and sharing. Why? Because generosity is Christ-like and greed is sin. Put off harmful words, put on healthy words. Why? Because the right edifying word at the right moment can be a pipe that showers God's grace on another. Those are some powerful commands. And tonight, as we look at verses 31 through 32, we'll see that they describe our problem with anger even more intrusively. So, verse 31, what does it say? It tells us to put off anger in all its forms. Put off anger in all its forms. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now there are slight differences of meaning in these words that we'll look at, but they all deal with anger. Does that kind of surprise you? I mean, think about where we've been. We looked at anger in verses 26 to 27. In those verses, the door was kind of open to crack for you and I to have righteous anger, so why look at it again? He doesn't do that for any of the other sins he mentions. This is the only one he comes back to. Why? Because anger is extremely dangerous. Verse 26 said, be angry and don't sin. And verse 31 says, let all anger be put away from you. Don't excuse your anger. Put it off. Here, anger is described as something bad without any qualification, unlike verse 26. This tells us that being angry and not sinning is probably pretty rare. So when you look at these terms, they all seem to describe fights between people, right? And we've said these commands are relational. So don't these terms, if we're honest, even describe the fights that you've had in your family? We can look at these words for anger in verse 31 and we can come up with two rough expressions of anger. The first is put off revealed anger, put off revealed anger. And that's rage, yelling, and abuse here. Sometimes we think of anger as being either blow up or clam up, and I I think Robert Jones' description of angry revealing or angry concealing is more helpful. That some of these words describe anger that is revealed, and other people know you're angry. You're not hiding it. My translation of verse 31 reads this way. Let all bitterness and rage and anger and yelling and slander be removed from you with all ill will. Rage is passionate anger. This term and the word anger are sometimes synonyms. Both of these words are actually used to describe God's anger in other passages. So at least God can be angry and not sin. The jury is out, of course, on whether you and I ever have, but we can have anger that is revealed. Clamor in the ESV is yelling, crying, shouting, screaming. This screaming occurs even in Christian families. It's angry yelling. And it's interesting that this word is only used here in a negative manner. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it's a positive use. It was commonly used actually for shouts of joy, but context obviously dictates something different here. We um, pastored in Minnesota for about 11 years, and uh, the first year we were there, 
we took our kids trick-or-treating. It was this great opportunity to meet our neighbors. Nobody thinks it's weird that you come up and knock on their door. Um, and so we introduced ourselves to one neighbor behind our house and uh, kind of up on a hill behind us, the next block over. And then we told her where we lived. Hey, we just moved in the community here. This is where we live. And with a twinkle in her eyes, she said, well, oh, that house over there. That's the house where I regularly heard the previous owners yelling at each other. And so she said, she looked at us and kind of winked and said, so be careful, sound carries quite well into our house. Which I assured her, I hope you never hear us arguing. We're gonna to try to do it really quietly. <laughs> That's the kind of yelling and screaming described by this word when sometimes even the neighbors know that you're angry. Slander is the word from what we get blasphemy in other contexts. It can mean gossip or speaking evil of others. Here it seems to prominently indicate abusive language or cursing or profane speech. It's, it's verbal abuse or vilifying of others, demeaning speech, it's name calling. And for some of you, you're like, surely no Christians do this. And Christians do. Verse 31 describes anger that explodes, yelling, cursing, and abusive speech. It's anger that doesn't hide that it's angry. And do those words characterize you at times? Is that what's happening in your house? Is that what you're teaching your kids? It is unacceptable for a believer, Paul is telling us here. You have to put it off. That cannot be part of the new man you are. You know, some angry revealers boast and the fact that, hey, at least I get it out. You know, I don't, I don't try to hide it like others. But that's not actually admirable. You're actually boasting in your sinfulness. Hey, at least other people know I'm sinning. That's, that's not impressive. Second, he tells us here to put off concealed anger. Bitterness, malice, anger. So these three words seem to describe anger that is internal. Sometimes others might not know you're angry or, or you might pat yourself on the back that you're just kind of moody or silent or bitter. You're not yelling. It's still anger and it's still sin. Bitterness is a resentful spirit that refuses to be reconciled. It, it's actually derived from an adjective that means pointed or sharp arrow that it just keeps poking. That's the idea, it just keeps poking. It never gets smoothed over. It's the hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about past offenses. All four times in the New Testament, it's used of a bitter or resentful attitude. Bitterness and resentment can be verbal, but often they're quietly so. It's like the smoldering fire that could burst into flame at any moment. Anger here can be a settled and sullen hostility. Think of the silent treatment in marriage. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say silent treatment, right? I mean. It's not just the kecks, right? You guys are experienced with the silent treatment. <clears throat> Think of the person that won't admit they're angry, but everyone is on eggshells around them. Dad claims, I'm not angry. Yeah, why is everyone tiptoeing around you then? They all know you are. Malice here is ill will. It's a kind of catch-all word for badness or wickedness. Here, here it's best translated as, as, as ill will, malice, or maliciousness. It's any attitude or action that intends harm to one's neighbor. It is an internal sin. It's not as obvious on the outside. So, what is Paul telling us here? Get rid of all the outside sins of yelling, anger, rage, but don't think that that's enough. You must also deal with the inside, the heart that hates others. All of these, the verse says, must be put away from you. 
Anger is a major characteristic of the old person and has to be put off. Maybe you simmer. You're an angry concealer. That's sin and has to be put off. Maybe you yell. You're an angry revealer. That too is sin and must be put off. You see, scripture doesn't make the same distinction that you and I often do, right? We look at these last three terms and we figure that they're an improvement over angry revealing, but they're not. We think we're doing great if we don't yell and scream. As long as we only bite our lips, our anger isn't so bad. Maybe it's not even sin, but you're wrong. This internal type of anger is also supposed to be put off. God does not make a distinction between sinful revealing and sinful concealing. They are both sin that need to be put off. One is not a better sin than the other. Both are clothes of the old man that you used to be. Does putting off anger in all its forms sound impossible to you? It does to me at times. Maybe anger or bitterness or ill will or slander. It's been part of your life as long as you can remember. Maybe you can't imagine life ever being different. But God says it can be. Obviously in Ephesians 4, we're told to take off the old clothes of anger and put on the new clothes of grace. It isn't written as if it's some fantasy to be able to do that. It's written as if it's expected of all believers that you and I can do that. But also we have passages like Romans 6.11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Wayne Grudem says about these verses, to be dead to the ruling power of sin means that we as Christians, by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection life of Christ working within us, have power to overcome the temptation and enticements of sin. Sin will no longer be our master as it once was before we became Christians. Now maybe in talking about anger, you get defeated. In fact, maybe you think like Wayne Grudem goes on to surmise some Christians might think when they say this. A Christian should never say, for example, this sin has defeated me, I give up. I've had a bad temper for 37 years and I'll have one until the day I die and people are just gonna have to put up with me the way I am. To say this is to say that sin has gained dominion. It is to allow sin to reign in our bodies. It is to admit defeat. It is to deny the truth of scripture. Are you denying the truth of scripture? You can be different. You have the power of the resurrected Christ to draw on. So, put off anger. Second, it says, put on grace, verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So unlike the angry old man that you used to be, live 180 degrees opposite of that. And there are three virtues that we should put on that can be summarized as grace. He tells us to be kind, which denotes someone who's good or pleasant. It's a virtue that God demonstrates. We saw it actually, you would see it earlier in Ephesians 2 verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is called kind throughout the Old Testament. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Tenderhearted means compassionate. It's a compound word where one of the words comes from the word which means guts. So we, we would say that the heart is the organ of feeling and first century Greeks spoke of guts being the seat of feelings or emotions. So it's the center of compassion is the idea. This word means being sympathetic to the needs of fellow Christians. 
And then forgiving means acting in grace toward each other. It's actually not the normal word for forgiveness, but one which emphasizes the gracious nature of the pardon. Biblically, forgiveness is a threefold promise. It's a promise not to bring up an offense to some, someone's face, not to bring it up behind their back, and not to dwell on it. And all three of those promises are important for it to be biblical forgiveness. What is often called that, for example, forgiving and forgetting, is nonsense. You, you often don't forget an offense, but you choose not to dwell on it. You don't give it any airtime in your head. You also choose not to share it with others, for example. Man, can you believe what my husband did? Can you believe what my wife did? And you don't throw it back in the offender's face at a later date when you need it to win an argument. It really is being gracious to someone. Now notice again that my sermon titles, as uncreative as they are, have drawn attention to the fact that these are opposites. When you were an unbeliever, anger and bitterness came naturally to you. They were comfortable old clothes. Now you're supposed to be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. And those clothes might feel stiff and unfamiliar. Those virtues are 180 degrees opposite from what came naturally to you. But so is your direction. You were destined for eternal separation from God in hell, and there was no escape. And then you heard the gospel, and you trusted Christ as your savior. You believed his death on the cross and his resurrection, and your direction changed in an instant. Now you have a different destiny, a destiny with God in heaven, and you went from condemned to declared righteous, from judged to adopted into God's family. So, so God commands that your behavior and attitudes match your new direction, and he gives you all the resources you need to see this change come about. We've noticed that every one of these changes in verses 25 through 32 is relational, and this one is no exception. Wouldn't you want to have a relationship with the person that is kind, that is tenderhearted, that is forgiving, a person that is gracious, a person who gives you what you don't deserve? That's obviously the definition of grace. That makes relationship easier. The bitter person, the prickly person, the angry person makes relationship hard. Don't be that person. That's what Paul's telling us here. And like every other change in this paragraph, there is a reason for the change. There's a specific way for your thinking to be renewed. Think about God's forgiveness. That's what verse 32 says. As God in Christ forgave you. Even as or just as here, um, People call this the conformity pattern, they, that they show Christ's saving activity as prototypical for believers' conduct. So even as God forgave you, you, you do the same thing. You forgive other people. That's the point. God was gracious to you, so you be gracious to others. God's act of graciousness was accomplished once for all on the cross, so you can be gracious in daily life. Specifically, God was gracious in forgiving you. And just as you were forgiven, you're supposed to forgive others. So how did God forgive us in Christ? I mean, what is his forgiveness like? It, it's quite a bit different um, from what we often call forgiveness. It was immediate. God's forgiveness of us was immediate. There, there was no silent treatment. That's, that's how some of you forgive, right? 
Your spouse has to know they're wrong, and so you let them feel your seething anger for a while. Because after all, if you don't, they might do the same thing again since you offer forgiveness so easily. But, but that type of so-called forgiveness is just a cover for taking vengeance on the person that offended you. You say you forgave when you really didn't. God forgives immediately, and that should be our goal. With God, we really are restored. He doesn't hold your sins against you. Not only was it immediate, it was permanent. God doesn't bring it up later. It really deals with your offenses against him. It's once and done. I mean, that's incredible. God doesn't dwell on it. He's not in heaven smoldering over your accumulated lifetime of sin against him. Now, maybe those characteristics sound like God is almost flippant about sin, but that's not true. God's forgiveness takes sin seriously. He doesn't downplay it. It is a real offense against him. Forgiveness cost God a lot. It cost him the death of his son. So he takes sin seriously. Forgiveness wasn't easy, it was costly. And it's beyond the scope of this sermon to address the repentance of the offender. Some believers read this passage in Ephesians 4, and rather than finding an encouragement to generously forgive others, they find an excuse to withhold forgiveness. And they explain that God doesn't forgive us unless we repent, therefore unless the offender repents, they won't forgive them, and that's wrong. The point of this passage is not to find a reason to withhold forgiveness. You're not reading this passage correctly if that's what you think it's telling you. It's an encouragement to give forgiveness generously. If you've confronted the other person and that's an important step and they have not repented, you can still have a forgiving attitude towards them just like Jesus does towards you. And according to the last phrase in verse 32, the reason I can forgive others is because I've been forgiven far more by God. My offenses against God are far greater than anyone's offenses against me. So if you're gonna dwell on sin, dwell on your sin against God. And as you do, well honestly the offenses against you will shrink. They're just not as significant. Sinning against the creature is not as significant as sinning against the creator. The reason I can put off anger is because someone's violation of my preferences or opinions or even their sin against me is not nearly as serious as my sin against God. And my sin against God has been forgiven. Remember, the first half of this letter told us what God did in Christ for us. The first three chapters are the ground of our behavior. They are the reason that we can be gracious towards others. Jesus has been gracious to us. You know why you, know why you can get angry? Because you really don't think that much of Christ's forgiveness of you. That, that's Bible, that's not my opinion. You think sins against you are greater than your sin against God. You think of yourself as someone who is sinned against, not as someone who sins. That's why you can justify your anger. I started this sermon by reviewing the first four chapters of Ephesians, that in light of all we have in Christ, we cannot give up on growing. He's given us redemption by grace. You have the Holy Spirit. God has formed all of us into the church, and he's made you a new person. You can grow. You can change. You might have all sorts of deficits. You might look at your life and say, it seems like anger is a bigger problem for me than it is for other people. You know, God, in his common grace, um, allows some people to seemingly have a lesser struggle with that. So maybe you're like me. I think of anger as something that God continues to work in my life on. 
Or maybe, maybe your parents were a terrible example of how to solve problems. So it's like you're learning everything from scratch. Or maybe you lived a long life of sin. Any or all of those might be true in your situation. You might have extra hurdles, but Ephesians 1.3 says this, you have been given all spiritual blessings in Christ. Nothing has been withheld from you. If you are a believer, you have all spiritual blessings in Christ. So you can be different. You can have a different direction. You can have a different behavior. It can be 180 degrees opposite of what it was. So what's the next step for you? Anger is so harmful to relationships. It has to be put off in all its forms. Maybe you're a yeller. Maybe you're a quiet seether. But either way, God wants you to put it off. So what's the next step for you? Here's some homework. Read through the book of Proverbs. It's 31 chapters, so take your time. And look for all verses that talk about any form of anger and study them. Then share what you're learning with someone else. Or, I mentioned two books before, one of them, Uprooting Anger, Biblical Help for a Common Problem by Robert Jones. I hope that doesn't seem too hard to read a book. It's a helpful book, you should get it. Now, maybe you won't do either of my suggestions for dealing with your anger. It's quite possible that the Holy Spirit has nudged you in a different direction, and that's great. That's, that's awesome if he's done that. But isn't it also possible that you're just spiritually lazy? That you want spiritual change but not if it costs even the least bit of effort or time. Guess what? You're gonna stay an angry person. God's plan isn't for you to be hit with pixie dust that magically changes you. He wants you to work. And that struggle over months and years brings him glory. One way to become gracious, we need to put on grace. One way to put, become gracious is to read, meditate, and study God's grace to you. And one example of it in Scripture is the parable of the unjust servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. You know that story. Spend a month in that passage, and you will probably grow in grace towards others. In Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, there's not an extended paragraph on forgiveness like you find in Matthew 18. But what is here is so powerful. Forgive as Jesus forgave you. Matthew 18 describes how Jesus forgave you. So do other passages like the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels or Isaiah 53. Read all you can in Scripture on Christ's forgiveness. Maybe you need to memorize the definition of forgiveness. Maybe what you've been calling forgiveness in your house has not been forgiveness. It's been a cessation of hostilities temporarily, but it hasn't been forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise not to bring it up to their face, not to bring it up behind their back, and not to dwell on it. And the not dwelling on it is probably the hardest part of that. Because we think, if I don't bring it up to their face and I bring it up on their back, and all I do is think about how mad I am at them in my head, that I'm okay. But God actually wants change from the heart, which means your thoughts have to change. The inside has to change. You don't have to dwell on it. That's not forgiveness. I hope... The Spirit uses this passage to help you become a more grace-filled person. We are like Christ when we give grace to people. And I know what you're thinking. They don't deserve it. Yeah, that's the point. That's why it's called grace. And you didn't deserve it either. And God has lavished it upon you. 
Let's not be angry people. Let's be grace-filled people. Let's pray. Father, we, we have had opportunities this week to sing about your grace to us. We love, we love singing about your forgiveness, Christ's death for us, God, how he took all of your wrath. God, that truth should make us more gracious people. Help us, Father, to meditate on the gospel. Help us to remember your forgiveness of us. And God, may your spirit use it to help us become gracious people to others. In Christ's name, amen.